to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The return of Christ, the second coming. Today on Back to Basics... Pastor Brian completes his study in the book of Revelation. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his message titled, Revelation, the Big Picture. Now here's Pastor Brian. He was slain and redeemed us to God. What is the church made up? Made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's what the church is. So that to me just is further support for the idea that the rapture has occurred and and this is the church now in heaven. But what is Jesus about to do? The lamb, the lion of Judah, he is about to take the scroll and to open its seals. And that is the beginning of the judgment that will fall upon the earth, that, that's the beginning of the tribulation period. So now Revelation chapter six, this is where we get to speed up. <laughs> Revelation chapter six through Revelation 19 verse 11 is all talking about the same period of time. It's talking about the great tribulation period. And it begins with the opening of the scroll and the seven seals. And so the seven seals, the first seal is opened and there's this white horse that comes forth and one who sits on it with a bow and a crown was given him and he goes forth conquering to conquer. Maybe you remember back on our study, we pointed out this is the, uh, this is the unleashing of the antichrist into the world. And so again, you know, oftentimes people ask the question, well, you know, what, what about the mark of the beast? What if I take that? Or, you know, what, what, about, what about the Antichrist? Listen, if our eschatology is correct, and I, I personally think it is, the Antichrist comes after the church has already been removed. The, the true church, the, the true believers, there will definitely be a church that's left here, but it will be a church that's made up of uh, people who aren't Christians. They just happen to attend church, but they're not true believers. And so the, the Antichrist comes to power with the opening of the first seal. And then you have the second seal, and you have uh, the fiery red horse, and is granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And then the third seal, the black horse, and you've got famine. Then the fourth seal, you've got death. And this just begins this lengthy, detailed description of the judgments that will come, beginning with the seven seals. Context there, the sky receded uh, and rolled up like a scroll. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So the first description of the seals takes us out. But then when we go to the trumpets, it's the same time frame that's being covered, but it's, it's just taking a, 
a closer look. So it seems to me like the seals give you kind of the bigger picture look, the trumpets take you closer in and give you more detail, and the, the bulls take you in and give you the, the real final details of um, the judgment. So, and you have that, like I said, from chapter six on through chapter 19, verse 11. But it's important to comment on chapter seven because on chapter seven, you have the sealing of the 144,000. And this is where the book of Revelation really, to me, just becomes so interesting because for at least 2,000 years, we're at the 2,000 year mark now, for at least 2,000 years, the nation of Israel has been set aside by God. God has been doing a, a work among the peoples of the earth, Jews included, but not exclusively. And God has been gathering out of the nations a people for himself. And for many people, even people in the church, Israel, the Jewish nation, King David, you know, all of the, this is all the past. This is all history. This is all something that happened a long time ago in the course of God's work. But, you know, that's all past. It's, it's a different thing now. It's a new thing now. But suddenly in Revelation chapter seven, lo and behold, the 12 tribes of Israel turn up again. And these are not references to anybody in the church. They're not just sort of symbolic references to just believers in general. These are 144,000 Jewish people, the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whenever the term, the children of Israel is used in the Bible, listen, it only always means one thing, the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The children of Israel never, ever means the church, never once. So I say that because people say, oh, well, you know, 144,000, these aren't really Jews. These are just, uh, it's a, kind of just a reference to believers in general. No, this is where the focus, because you see it's during this period, this tribulation period, this is where the focus shifts back for at least 2,000 years, the focus of the, the work of the Spirit of God has been on gathering out of the nations a people for himself from among primarily the Gentile nations. But when we enter into this period in the future, when the world enters into the tribulation, this is where the Spirit of God now is once again directed back toward Israel and toward bringing them ultimately into the covenant and bringing them into that place of ruling and reigning with their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Revelation chapter seven brings to the forefront once again, uh, the nation of Israel in the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, once again, these are descriptions of the the seals being opened and the judgments that are coming, the trumpets being sounded and the judgments that are coming. And then when we come to the 10th chapter, we have this, this proclamation kind of in the middle of all of this about just the, the fact that God is bringing everything to a conclusion. Look at um, verse five. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea 
and on the land. His hand was raised to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be a delay no longer. And in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. And so now there's that proclamation that we're really coming down to the final days of history. Now, once again, chapter, chapter 11, 12, and 13, real important to talk about real quickly. 11, 12, and 13, chapter 11, again, shows us the Jewish context of all of this, the, the context of Israel, because chapter 11 takes us once again to Jerusalem and takes us to a rebuilt temple. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt at a certain point. And when this rebuilt temple has been established, and we know from other uh, sources, from Paul's writings, that the, the person we commonly call the Antichrist, two witnesses to Jerusalem to prophesy against all that's going on. And that's what chapter 11 is talking about here. I will give power to my two witnesses, verse three, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this is a reference to the Antichrist, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Which city is that? Where also our Lord was crucified. We know that was Jerusalem, right? Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them who dwell on the earth. But now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here and they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. That is yet to take place in the city of Jerusalem. But notice these, the people of the earth are rejoicing when the Antichrist slays these two prophets. Why? Because they prophesied against them and their prophecies tormented them. How could their prophecies torment them? Well, of course, they were telling them they were wrong. They were hurting their feelings. <laughs> they were using those little trigger phrases. They couldn't find a safe space from the prophets. The prophets were right there pronouncing this judgment. And there's this great celebration once the Antichrist slays them, but then God raises them from the dead. Amazing. Chapter 12 talks again specifically about the conflict between the devil himself and Israel and his persecution of the Jewish people. And it's there in chapter 12 that we read in verse 11, 
and they overcame him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And then chapter 13 gives us, um, again, it gives us more of a, of a close-up look at this beast that comes out of the, the pit. And it's in chapter 13 that we come to understand that there are two antichrists, if you will. As I pointed out before, the, the term antichrist is only one time used in the Bible to refer to this person. John uses that. He says, we know that antichrist is coming, but there are many antichrists that have already come. So John does pinpoint there's one antichrist coming, but he's more commonly called the beast and he's called the son of perdition and he's called the dragon and, and the, these different things. But Revelation 13 shows us that there's actually two rather than one. And later on, we come to understand one is referred to as the beast. The other is referred to as the false prophet. One is in a sense, primarily more of a political leader, although there's obviously a strong spiritual component to that. But the other one is almost exclusively a religious leader. And he is the one who causes the whole world to worship the first beast. And it's here in chapter 13 that we see that there seems to be like an assassination attempt on the first beast that he survives it. And as a result of that, the false prophet gets everybody to make an image and calls everybody to worship the first beast. He has power, supernatural power, evidently, to give some sort of life to the image. And it's there that the image then requires that everyone receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead. The number, of course, is the number of a man, 666. That's chapter 13. It's all right there in chapter 13. Chapters 14 and 15 are just following up after that, uh, another look at the 144,000. And then chapter 15, you sort of have a prelude to, the, to the, uh, the bull judgments, the final phase of judgment that's coming. Uh, there in verse three, it says, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And then there we find that the, the final phase of the judgment comes in the bull judgments, uh, chapter 16. The first bull, the sore breaks out on those who have received the mark of the beast. Second bull, the sea turns to blood. Third bull, the fresh water supply turns to blood. Fourth bull, men are scorched by the sun. Uh, the fifth bull, the river Euphrates is dried up to make a way for the kings of the east for the great battle that is going to take place. And then the earth is uh, uh, an earthquake at their, the seventh bowl. And then chapter 17 and 18 are an up-close look at the judgment of the final world power. Now, of course, if you have a final world ruler, he's going to have going to be New York City and other locations. As I pointed out when we were teaching through this, I think based upon the prophecies of Jeremiah in, say, Jeremiah chapter 52, I think it's very well possible that it's, it's 
Babylon itself will be rebuilt at this time, and that will become the center. But whatever the location geographically is, what you have in chapter 17 and 18 is you have the summation of, of world power combining um, military might, combining commerce, combining uh, religion. It's all bundled up into one thing, and it's all judged and destroyed in an instant. So as we pointed out before, one of the fascinating things to me is that the final world power, which will be under the, the headship of the beast, is the shortest lived empire in all of history. It lasts for a maximum of seven years, and then it is obliterated completely. And so that is chapter 17 and 18. Chapter 19, the first 10 verses are just uh, heaven exulting over the destruction of Babylon. And chapter uh, 19, verse 11, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful, true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The return of Christ, the second coming. That's what we just read about there. And then... The beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake burning with fire and brimstone and the rest of the armies were killed with a sword that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Chapter 20, we come to what we call the millennium. The millennium means, millennium means thousand years. We come to the thousand year reign of Christ. Six times in chapter 20, we are told that they, they lived and reigned with him a thousand years, that after the thousand years had taken place. So, so six times. Now, I say that because some people say, well, there's not really a thousand year reign. It's, that's just a figure of speech. It just means an indefinite period of time. It says a thousand six times. Why? Because it's a thousand years. That's why. It is a thousand year reign of Christ. Now, it's an, it, it is an eternal reign of Christ because Christ is never going to be overthrown after this point. But there will be a revolt that will come again because Satan, during this period of time, in chapter 20 tells us, the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. The devil is cast into the bottomless pit. He, uh, there's a seal placed upon him and he's not able to get out of that pit for 1,000 years. But at the end of the 1,000 years, he will be released again for a brief moment. And when he's released, he will be able to gather an innumerable multitude from among the nations. Now remember, who are the people that he's gonna gather? Well, at the end of the tribulation, there will be many people that have survived the tribulation period without receiving the mark of the beast without worshiping the, the beast, 
without dying in the plagues and the battles and all of those things, they will be judged by Jesus. Uh, Matthew 25 tells us that he's gonna gather all nations before him. He's gonna separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Uh, to those on his right hand, come you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That's the millennium. Those on his left hand, depart from me into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So all of that's gonna happen. So these people that survived the tribulation are going to be the believers that are going, going into the millennium. They're gonna live a thousand years and they're gonna live in almost perfect environment and um, most of the curse of sin is gonna be lifted. Death will be the, uh, the exception rather than the rule. Sickness will pretty much vanish. There will be a, a worldwide reign of peace. Uh, Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Um, those people who enter into the, to the thousand year reign initially, they will repopulate the earth. And so generations of children will be born. And in the hearts of those generations that will come later, there will be evidently a rebellion against the Lord. And when Satan is released from the prison, he no. will, they're murdering and killing everybody because of the evil in their hearts. And so that will be proven once and forever. And so at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. That will be very brief. And then he will be cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. And then as we've looked at, the great white throne judgment takes place. And all of those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Who are those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life? Those who have refused to bow the knee to the Lord. That's who they are. And then Revelation 21 and 22, we just studied that over the past couple of weeks. We have the new heaven and the new earth and all of the wonderful things that are told us there and that beautiful description, the tabernacle of God is with men, verse three of 21. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor crying nor sorrow, there should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And the beautiful picture that's given there, the, the holy city is described, the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, each of their names over the gates, the foundation stones, the names of the 12 apostles and the foundation stones of the eternal city. And then the 22nd chapter, the description of the tree of life being there, and there's no need for the light, the lamp, the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. They shall reign forever and ever. The throne of, of God and the lamb is established there. And all of this concludes with those invitations that we talked about. The Lord continuing all the way to the end to invite people to come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. And verse 20, he who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming quickly. As we pointed out, quickly means swiftly. These things will happen so rapidly once they begin. And John says, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. 
One of my favorite topics is history, and church history is a part of that. I've read many church history books, and I recently read a fantastic book by an author named John Dixon, and the book is called Bullies and Saints. And the subtitle is An Honest Look at the Good and Evil in Christian History. And John is an Australian. He is an apologist. He is also a historian, and he does an excellent job at looking at both the good and the bad things in church history. So if you're into history, I think knowing church history is important for Christians. I highly recommend Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History by John Dixon. You can order the book Bullies and Saints by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Bullies and Saints by John Dixon to help you understand both the good and bad historical contributions of Christianity. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we begin a new series in the book of Genesis. Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.